Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Astela Around the World. Today we have uh, an amazing guest. Hi, Amit. Hi. Oi, brasileiros. Hi for everyone else. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Amazing. So Amit is the co-founder and managing partner at Tau Ventures, an AI-first seed fund in Palo Alto with 20-plus applied AI investments in digital health, automation, and enterprise. Before founding Tau, Amit worked in venture at Samsung Next. He co-founded Health IQ, which raised Series D led by Andreessen Horowitz and valued at $450 million. Prior to that, he was a VC at Norwest Ventures and worked in product and analytics at Google. Amit holds a bachelor's in computer science and master's in biomedical informatics, both from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard. He speaks three languages natively, lives carbon neutral, and is a 70.3 Ironman finisher, and has built a hospital in rural India serving 10,000 people. What an amazing story. We're so excited to get to know you. I mean, Laura and I know a bit of your story, and we're so excited to share with everybody. So welcome, Amit. Well, thank you. And I know a little bit about your story also. Astella is a fantastic fund. It's one of the VC funds that has really put Brazil on the map. So congratulations to you guys. Uh, kudos for everything you're doing. Thank you, Amit. Thank you. We have so much to learn with you, not only about your journey and what uh, you've built so far, but I'm so curious. And we will leave this question to the end. But I would love to understand how is to live carbon neutral. But let's go through our questions before and then uh, we move this to the last one. So just to starting with your background a little bit, uh, you moved to the U.S. Uh, for college like 20 years ago and never moved back. You're practically a, a gringo, <laughs> but you're actually a capixaba. So for listeners that doesn't know much about Brazil, capixaba is someone that was born in the state of Espírito Santo in Brazil. Amit's father migrated from India. And uh, you also spent part of uh, your upbringing in Brasilia. Tell us a, a bit about your roots and uh, your journey back uh, infants and teenager years. <laughs> you did your homework, uh, and I'm flattered. My parents are Indians, both of them. They are from small places in India. And in the 70s, they immigrated to Brazil. Uh, they're professors. Uh, they originally went to Brasilia, the capital. And at that point in time, for Uh, those who may be aware, Brasilia was just about 10 years old. It was a burgeoning capital city. My parents arrived, typical immigrant story, eight bucks in their pocket, one suitcase, and no knowledge whatsoever of Portuguese or Brazil. And one thing led to another, but they built their lives in Brazil. They have now been there for over 50 years, and there's been generations and generations of students that they have taught and have helped build, I, I would argue, uh, a lot of the youth in Brazil. They moved to Vitória. It's a long story involving the Brazilian dictatorship and lots of turbulence and things that we had nothing to do with nothing, but 
we got caught up and my parents ended up in Vitoria, uh, which is a smaller city on the coast of Brazil. And that's where I was born and raised till basically my teenage years. And then the government of Brazil apologized for some mistakes that they had done in the past. The new democracy had come back and my parents came back to Brasilia. And that's where I did my high school and I uh, got a scholarship to the American school, which is a bilingual school in Brasilia. And from there, I applied to universities outside, and that's how I ended up here. I have lived in India also uh, while growing up for a couple of years. I feel very connected to all three countries. I do hold citizenships from all three countries. I speak the languages of all three countries fluently. Well, India has many languages, but I speak Hindi, which is the most popularly spoken language. And I realize it's a little bit of an unusual trajectory, uh, but every life story is unique. So in my case, I do realize there's very, very few Indian immigrants in Brazil. I grew up as the only one I knew. But I think that also makes me blessed in the sense that I have been exposed to multiple cultures, multiple languages, multiple ways of thinking, and very different kinds of people. And I've learned to make myself at home wherever I am and to befriend uh, people wherever I am. It turns out to be pretty handy, not just in work, but also in life. It's the blessing and the curse of third culture kids, right? It is, it is. Third culture kids, that's right. I don't know at this point whether I'm third, fourth, fifth, whatever culture I am, but it is both the blessing and the curse. I choose to make it a blessing. I think it's a choice that we can make. I totally agree with you. I um, relate and I think it expands our worldviews in many ways. So really interesting. Thank you for sharing about that. So now that we know a little bit about your roots, we wanted to go a little bit deeper into your story. And uh, let's start with the beginning, right? So after you graduated Stanford, you went to Google as a product manager. We would love to hear a little bit about your experience, mainly focusing on the culture at Google. For a long period of time, Google was criticized for the lack of diversity and inclusion. So why were you there? Was the company already looking at this problem? How do you think diversity is crucial for a company like Google? Would you weigh the importance of a diversity on different stages of a company? How do you see that? Yeah, so I joined Google in 2004. Uh, I had just finished my master's and it was a very different company in a very different time than today. Just to give you a sense, the company was still private at the time I joined, uh, less than a thousand people. I stayed there for four years. By the time I left, 98% of the folks had come after me. The company had burgeoned to about 25,000 people at that point. So what I joined and what I left are also very different from where Google is now. I think Google has over 100,000 employees and hundreds of offices probably at this point. At the time that I joined, there was a heavy focus on hiring technical people. In fact, the position I joined product manager, there was an expectation that we were computer scientists. Maybe one, once in a while, you would get a, a math major or an electrical engineering major, but it was very much focused on computer scientists, people who could very well be engineers to become product managers. In fact, I remember having applied for engineering and Google steered me into the direction of product management because they felt that I had very broad interests and that I would be a better fit, which I think is the right choice for me. And it's hard for me to answer the question you asked, to be very frank, because I was too young in my career and I wasn't necessarily as aware or thinking about these questions as much. But I do think that Google was uh, careful and caring of diversity, even in those days. At some point, I don't know when exactly, they were starting to collect statistics and understand their pipeline of candidates and hiring and understand how best to build teams. There's some studies that Google has published a few years back even about these things. So I feel that There was a culture, now not necessarily all the results. There was a, 
a desire and an intent, but perhaps not all the results and all the expectations were met. I think that is a fair statement. I don't think the tech industry overall, let me not single out Google. I think the tech industry overall has a lot more to do. I think the world overall has a lot more to do. But I am grateful very much so for what I saw at Google. Um, At the time when I joined, I was just a Brazilian citizen and I was very afraid that I wouldn't even get a job or easily get a job. And Google did take the bet on me and Google did support me. And at some point, uh, other people in the company realized that despite the accent and the mannerisms, I I was an immigrant and I felt very welcome. Uh, I saw many, many people at Google who were immigrants who come from very different backgrounds and they sponsored my green card and they did a lot for me and not just for me, for a lot of other people. So I'm not saying they were perfect. I'm not saying that they fulfilled all their goals, but I think that the intent was always there. That's amazing. And after your four years at Google, you went uh, for an MBA in Harvard and then uh, you moved to Norwest. While thinking about the MBA, were you already considering the shift uh, from operations and uh, from product manager to the investment activities? How did you make the decision at that time? I had no idea what business school was. <laughs> <laughs> I did computer science and biology for my undergrad. Uh, I ended up minoring in biology. I think I was one sh- course short of majoring. And I did my master's at the intersection of those two in the School of Medicine. I studied to be a scientist and an engineer. I actually got into medical school. I was going to go become a doctor at Yale and I deferred it. I ended up joining Google and ended up staying. So my career was business school was not in the plans. I did not even know what business school was. If you had asked me at the time, I like to joke, if you had asked me what McKinsey and Goldman Sachs were, I would have answered blankly to you and said, I have no clue. Same thing. (laughs) So I got exposed to the business side while I was at Google. I realized it was something that I didn't know enough and I owed it to myself to develop it, to understand it. And that would make me a better product manager, entrepreneur, leader, no matter what I did. And in the second half of my career at Google, I met a lot of folks like me who had been technical and done a business degree. My boss, multiple series of bosses were like that. And it inspired me that, okay, maybe this business school thing is a good idea. It will make me more well-rounded. It will expose me to other things. And no matter what I do, it will be useful. One thing that I find true about my life, and it's it's a very core belief of mine, is that investing in yourself is the best investment you can make. I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't had the benefit of so many good mentors who guided me, who gave me the opportunities, and I did seek them very much also. So I think that's why I ended up applying for business school. And yes, there is a certain measure here of also thinking about other careers, thinking about exposure to a different network, uh, having the credibility and the credence of having gone to business school. So all of those are reasons why I applied, why I got in. I considered not going even after I got in and uh, until my father called me an idiot and said I should go. And I'm very glad I did. I would make the same decision. Yeah, no, it seems like you made great investments in yourself from schools and companies you joined early on. Talking about that, we would love to hear a little bit about your experience at Norwest Ventures, right? We know they are kind of reserved for listeners who don't know. It's a fund with over $10 billion in AUM and with more than 600 companies invested And it's been around for a while. So it's inception in 1961. I'm not sure how much you can share, but we would love to hear your experience working at Norwest. No, absolutely. I'm glad to share. Norwest is, I believe, the second oldest VC fund that's still around. Uh, To your point, it's been a very successful VC fund. And a lot of 
folks there are entrepreneurs or operators turned investors. So it, it drives a very different mentality from many of the other funds. Uh, increasingly more, we have funds like this, but at the time, Norwest was perhaps a little bit of an exception. And I'm very, very grateful for Norwest. Uh, sincerely, I, I am where I am today because of the training they provided me. My old boss is somebody I'm very much in touch with. In fact, I just exchanged an email with him today. And he's an advisor to my own fund now. Uh, 10 years later. So I think it's a truism in venture capital. You probably also very much subscribe to this, that this is not a transaction. It's a relationship. And you will find yourself on the same side or the other side of the table all the time. And the folks you meet in previous lives are people you bring on with yourself as you continue moving forward. And you bring them forward and they bring you forward. So at Norwest, my experience was somebody who was excited and eager about venture capital and had very little clue about venture capital. At the time, I had a lot of theoretical knowledge. I knew what term sheets were. I knew what startups were. I knew what fundraising was, but I didn't have any practical experience. I had been educated at the School of Google. And previous to that, I had been educated at Stanford. Stanford is in many ways a startup university. So I had had more exposure than most, but not anywhere close to what you learn by actually being a practitioner of venture capital. And I see venture capital very much as an apprenticeship. So I was apprenticed under uh, a few of the partners and the way it worked at Norwest at the time, there were I was working in, a, in the early stage team and there were three or four partners there and there were three or four associates. So we all worked with each other, but you tended to work a little bit more with one of the partners. And that's what I did. I ended up doing a couple of C deals, a one big deal, worked on uh, a portfolio that included a couple of IPOs, a couple of exits, had the opportunity to attend some board meetings. I had really the, the opportunity to understand how to source more effectively, how to diligence companies more effectively, how to be a good investor post-investment, which is literally 90% of the work is after the investment. A lot of folks think that it's actually before the investment and there's a long journey of working with an entrepreneur. And it really prepared me for what I did next, which is starting my own company and then eventually going back into venture capital. Wonderful. Amit, it doesn't take much to see how you're mission-driven and uh, how you put health as a common denominator in your journey, whether it's in tech and, or uh, building a hospital in rural India. And uh, now you're focused on um, AI health at all ventures. Tell us a little bit how, what are the perspectives that you see for health and the world? I mean, we know that uh, health and education are two sectors that uh, drives inflation upwards every, every once in a while because there are several dilemmas on how technology can break this trajectory. So if you could give us a little bit of a flavor of what, how do you see the sector uh, innovating and moving and uh, and a little bit of uh, your trajectory and on the health uh, sector. Thank you for your kind words on, on being mission-driven. I, I just want to take a quick second perhaps to expand upon that. I don't think being mission-driven is exclusive with being profit-driven. I do believe in that intersection. I, I am a capitalist. I did come from Harvard Business School, which is in some ways the mecca of capitalism. And I do believe very much in profit and creating jobs is perhaps the biggest lever that we have for people to have a better life. So I very much believe in Adam Smith and his theories. I just think that capitalism can be done in a better way. Uh, capitalism does not need to be done when lose. I don't need to win and you need to lose for there to be an effective capitalism. Some people call it compassion capitalism. I, I don't know what the ism is, what the right term is, but I do believe that there's an overlap of interests 
And I could play outside of that overlap, but I choose to play in the overlap. And I think many people are like that. I see an abundance of that mentality where I am in Silicon Valley. I think you guys at Estella are also similar. And I think we have to do that. The world needs people to do that uh, for us to have a sustainable future. But anyways, I will get off my soapbox now and talk more about health. I've gravitated towards health throughout my career because I feel that uh, it's the foundation of everything. If you don't have good health, then how possibly can you do anything else? And um, I did study to be a doctor for those reasons, but I'm also passionate about engineering. And my career, I have you know, taking turns here and there, but always come back to this central theme and collided these themes at Tau Ventures. Uh, at Tau, what I focus on is early stage. So we're doing seeds primarily, but we're looking increasingly into series A's, B's, and C's. We have a new fund uh, focused on that. And when we make an investment, we'll look for companies that are using AI in a meaningful way. Uh, and I'll give you a few examples here. We just had a company that got sold. It's our first exit that uses machine learning for drug discovery. And they are hoping to, looking specifically into something called monoclonal antibodies. And I won't go too much into the science of it right now, but the hope is that instead of 10 years and a billion dollars to develop a drug, wouldn't it be amazing if you could do it in one year and $10 million? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could test many more compounds using the power of computers? And that's what that company does, focus especially on COVID and cancer. So we should all be rooting for them to succeed, honestly, because that's what will make a huge impact into the world. This company incidentally got sold and then they acquired two weeks later went to IPO and it's a $2.1 billion IPO. So we're glowing a bit. It's our first investment was a seed investment and we are very, very happy and proud of the team at Toshint. That's the name of the company. Another example here is, this is actually a Brazilian uh, that I may have mentioned to you, uh, based here in Silicon Valley, who uses machine learning for repurposing drugs to treat canine cancer, canine meaning dogs. And dogs actually, unfortunately, get more cancers three times more than human beings, probably because we have modified them so much and bred them so much. I believe it's the animal that gets the most amount of cancer. And if you have a dog, you understand that dogs are part of the family. So being able to take care of them when there's such a dearth of treatments is pretty key. By repurposing these drugs, you A, take care of a living being and help treat them, B, you build a large database, and that database can then be used to model human cancer. That is the big vision of the company. And so we invested in them also. And that's the kind of companies to look for, companies that are, have a technology moat and are doing hard things, solving hard problems. If we all focused on the easy stuff, then we don't move progress ahead. So I'm looking for those that are doing hard things using tech, but I'm obviously looking for folks who have some advantage. We prefer investing in a all things equal, in a doctor who can code rather than a coder who is trying to do medicine, right? We are looking for people who understand a problem deeply, have thought about it, have practiced it, have faced it, and then figure out all the different resources they need to bring together to solve it. We have a fundamental belief at Tau Ventures that AI is a tool. It's been around for 50 years. It's nothing new. It's that now it's possible to do it in a way that wasn't before. You have far more data than ever available before. You have far more computational power. You have an acceptance of technology and domains that were previously very resistant to it. So it's the perfect intersection. And that's why we started Tau Ventures two years ago with that central thesis that AI can now drive 10x changes. And at some point, it will be understood. Nobody will say I'm building an AI company. It will be understood that you have AI. 
in your company. Just like nobody says today, I'm building an internet company or a mobile company, right? So we want to be part of that leading edge that takes the world into that direction. I focus on healthcare. My partner does enterprise. And we do a little bit of automation. So cars, drones, robots. It's about 10% of our portfolio. I love that thought process and it, it totally makes sense. So interesting, the stats that dogs have three times more cancer than human. I did not know that. I guess they take up a little bit. They take up our energy, right? So you're back at sick dumb, right? <laughs> and we have done a lot to dogs in over time, right? Like pair up this dog with this dog, breed this dog with this dog. So we have in some ways altered the genetics of dogs more than any other animal on the face of the planet. No, yeah. Crazy. So we loved hearing a little bit about that company and would love to hear a little bit more about Tao Ventures. We understand it's AI first, which will be the same thing as saying internet first in a few years, I guess. Seed first. Oh, okay. <laughs> so tell us a little bit of uh, other cases of companies you've invested in. Well, to the point about the doctor who codes, uh, one of our investments is Iterative Scopes. And it is a doctor who had practiced for a few years, then also decided to go get an MBA and get too many degrees. You can look him up. His name is Jonathan Ng. And at some point during his MBA, he realized there was a big problem in colon cancer. Colon cancer is uh, unfortunately on the rise. Colon cancer, unfortunately, starts affecting people as early as in their 40s, typically. In the US, the guideline changes uh, now and then, but it's roughly 45 to 50 years you should start getting colonoscopies. And the unfortunate part is that when you get a colonoscopy, even then, 25% of the time, you could miss out on the polyps, the polyps that cause cancer. And there's reasons for it. The polyps are sometimes too small, they're hidden in the folds of the intestine, and it's very hard for you to use something like x-ray or MRI to even detect them accurately. So he realized he could improve the detection by taking the video feed and analyzing it in real time using computer vision. And that's what he did. Built a team around it, raised funding has a product that works, and now he's moving into other directions, which is not just diagnostics, but also treatment, and not just colon cancer, but a whole host of conditions that are collectively known as IBD, inflammatory bowel diseases. Don't want to get too scientifically complex here, but think about all kinds of issues that people have in their gut. I believe that Jonathan would agree very much with this vision that he wants to be the company that can make a really big dent here you know, help you with the diagnostics, helps you with the treatment, who knows, actually help you with the prediction of it. That would be incredible. If you can move from treatment to actually predictive, then you can prevent a lot of problems ahead. And allow me to get on my soapbox for one second. I don't think we have healthcare in the world. I think we have sick care. If you look at what we have for the most part in the world, we're great at taking an emergency and accident, fixing up giving you the medication, giving you the surgery. We're terrible at preventive. Most of us do not do enough about preventive and our systems, our infrastructures, our societies are not as well designed for preventive. It's far better for us to avoid all the things that will lead to a heart attack than have to deal with a heart attack. Unfortunately, it's almost human nature for us very hard to do, but I do have a dream. I do have a dream that one day, perhaps not in my lifetime even, but technology will continue enabling us to stop problems from even happening, from helping us detect the beginnings of a problem and helping us stem it at the bud. And we are starting to do it, and cancer may be the best example. Cancer is now detected earlier and more efficiently than ever before. This is the least worst time in human history, perhaps, to have cancer. It's still a terrible disease that has affected so many of us. My, I know dear friends and family who have been affected, and I do hope that 
cancer will move from being what it is today to becoming a manageable chronic disease within my lifetime. In fact, probably within the next 10 years even. I see technology playing a big role here, AI playing a big role, because we cannot make sense of everything that's out there in terms of data. There's more data, there's more papers being produced today than any human being conceivably possibly even ingest. In fact, the statistic is by the time you finish four years of medical school, 50% of what you have learned has already been outdated. Like the rate of progress that we have, the scientific rate of progress is just beyond what any human being can do. And technology is a tool to help us make sense of it. Uh, it's not the solution, but it's a very powerful tool. And I'll give one last example of this, if I may. 200 years ago, we had another piece of technology that just started being used by doctors and it allowed people to give numbers to what they would usually feel. And a lot of doctors at the time, a lot of society at the time questioned why should we do it? Why did it make sense? Wouldn't it be better just to touch and feel and understand it? We call that tool today the thermometer. The thermometer gave a view 200 years ago, quantified what a human being was going through to help us take better decisions. AI can be the same. AI is a far more powerful tool, multidimensional tool that can allow us to do things much better. That is so amazing. Oh my God. My parents are physicians and they focused on cancer treatment. So when you mentioned the mono... Clonos, I totally reconnected to some conversation that I thought that I heard about them and the protocols and how the the pharmaceutical industries uh, take up years and years to come up with uh, drugs that uh, could potentially treat a X or Y type of cancer. So I, I do uh, connect a lot uh, to this mission and also about um, what you mentioned before related to the capitalism system. I would love to pick your brain's brain and dig into what uh, a little bit about uh, what your, are your views on the system and what do you think it has to be changed and also in the way we live to be more more sustainable and more in a better society as a whole. I'm flattered. I'm certainly not a, an expert at this. I think people far wiser than me who have spent far more years thinking about these challenges can speak much more elegantly than I can. Uh, that said, let me vouch at least some semi-informed opinion here. I think capitalism is currently broken. I'm a beneficiary of it. I will not deny it. I, I, but I need to be part of the solution also to fix it. And I worry a lot about the inequality that capitalism is creating, the accumulation of wealth at the extremes. And this has happened before. It's cyclical. It's not new. About 100 years ago, we had a similar situation, perhaps, at least in the US. I think understanding that I'm not advocating for socialism here, and I don't want to get into political here, but what I'm advocating is, is the extremes of pay, perhaps, between a CEO and employees. This shouldn't be this large. This shouldn't be 100x, 300x, right? There should be some kind of bands around it. And I don't know how well to do that. Is it regulation? Is it societal pressure? Is it more your own personal morality? Participation and profits, which is what a lot of startups do, right? Equity. I think that should be increasingly more prevalent, right? Like make your employees into stakeholders also into your companies. And, and let me touch very specifically on the carbon neutrality that you were mentioning. I do think climate change is the biggest issue by far uh, facing humanity. I know I work in healthcare, but I think that even healthcare is secondary to climate change because if we do not take care of our planet, we won't be around. The planet will be around. We won't be around. So I do care very much, at least trying to live by my word. So I have solar panels. I produce enough energy to basically offset pretty much my consumption. We drive uh, electric cars. 
Mine is a plug-in hybrid. My wife's is a fully electric. We have planted a lot of trees. We take care of them a lot to offset that. I haven't been able to offset everything, but uh, I think I try to. Plane flights are the big one that is very hard to offset, but I haven't flown anywhere with COVID. <laughs> I barely fly with COVID. So I think I've been able to adjust it a little bit. I've installed water taps that are more uh, efficient. Uh, so they produce less water. Uh, our flushes are more efficient. They take less water. And I'm not alone in this. I know tons of people who have done this. And I'm blessed to live in a place in a part of the world where there are there's availability for doing things like this. And there are incentives, fiscal incentives to doing things like this. So I think that's actually a big lever. Like, let's give fiscal incentives as much as we can. You want to put solar panels, let's give you a deduction. You want to buy a more efficient car, let's give you a deduction, right? Like, let's give people reasons if they are on the fence to make the better choices. Just as a follow-up on that, it's also something that has to do with, with uh, the entire society view on, on moral, as you said as well, because we were uh, discussing this on carbon credits and the solution that they create for landowners uh, to not to take out the forest from their lands because they can be benefited by the price of uh, the credits. But in a certain moment, if the carbon credits prices decrease, would people just go there and, and take all the forest away? Um, it, for some people, it's hard to think about it. And there should be a way on, on how people think and morally behave that uh, you wouldn't uh, just be dependent on the price of the credits to consider the forest will be there for the entire life. So any views on that, on how we should uh, morally as well? <laughs> um. Personal views, perhaps, but uh, not perhaps fully informed. I know that carbon credits have had some controversy, you know, to your point in very short, just because I'm taking away from somewhere and replenishing somewhere else doesn't mean that I haven't created some kind of damage. I do think that carbon credits is part of the solution. It's just not the whole solution. I salute everybody who is actually working on carbon credits because I think it is important for us to do it. But we also need to worry about mitigating the impacts of the pollution that we are creating. I, I read a book recently, uh, was referred to me by another VC, actually, and really enjoyed it, called The Ministry of the Future, that is in the emerging cli-fi sector. And it had wonderful ideas. One of the ideas was embedding the price of pollution into the pricing of everything, because then we actually will have the market work appropriately, right? Like today a lot of purchases we make do not actually factor the externalities, to use the economic term, right? If we can figure out how to factor the externalities into the price of everything we buy, then consumers themselves will make the better choices. I think the system itself, as we have set up, will work more efficiently. So I do hold the belief that can happen. And in fact, AI and perhaps even blockchain can be part of that solution of, of providing visibility into the entire supply chain. For sure. I'm also an optimistic and I think uh, that uh, the humans and, uh, as, a, as a whole will find out a way to be more sustainable. I do agree. Yeah, I salute you. I'm the same way. I just worry that uh, we may pay a very heavy price and there's ways in which we can minimize what's coming ahead. We are going to suffer. The future is going to have problems. The present has problems. The future, I believe, will actually have worse problems. But we could do things now to prevent worse problems from happening. Like the nightmare scenario is Bangladesh is 120 million people living three feet above the ocean. Imagine if the ocean dries, you suddenly have 120 million people 
who are displaced into India, which is another densely populated country. And that's just talking about densely populated countries, but every country will be affected. Rio will go underwater. <laughs> Miami will go underwater. Uh, our crops will fail. It's not just the ocean water. It's the algae will be affected by the changes in chemistry. And we see in Brazil that the Amazon is the lungs of the planet. The Amazon is more like the liver of the planet because it's a carbon storage. The lungs of the planet is actually the ocean. Most of the oxygen comes from the algae in the ocean. So we cannot afford to get this wrong. We have one shot to get this right. So before we end the conversation with a more philosophical and more questions, I just wanted to get your view as a gringo, but as a Brazilian, right? So your view on LATAM, specifically on Brazil. How do you see the ecosystem develop? I know you haven't been working with the ecosystem, but you have a lot of intel into the market. And um, how do you see this ecosystem develop in the next five years? And also, I just wanted to add into that question, too, as a comparison in general. We know the U.S. is a country of immigrants, right? It's Brazil. Exactly. So is Brazil, right? But some research shows that most of these people left their country of origin because of a dissatisfaction, which led them to an entrepreneurial journey after they arrived in the U.S. What makes the U.S. In unique in this place, being that Brazil is also a country of in immigrants, to start a new life and a new business? And knowing the two countries, like, how do you compare? I know it's like a full question, right? Look, different aspects. Well, the, I think the big difference is that immigration is very strong still into the U.S. versus most immigrants into Brazil were two or three generations ago. I think that's the big difference. The Brazil hasn't renewed its immigration as much basically since the 40s, 30s or 40s, versus the U.S. Continue, U.S. is one of a handful of developed countries that's actually still growing in population, primarily because of immigration. Most developed countries are actually shrinking or stable in terms of population. So I, I salute very much the sense of renewal that we have in this country. I do think Brazil has many aspects of it also. And the market, to go very specifically, comparing those two countries, I have a little bit of a view. I don't think it's as informed as yours. I mean, you guys focus on Brazil, are based in Brazil, but I do have LPs in Brazil. About 25% of my LPs are Brazilian. In fact, if any other Brazilian or non-Brazilian, anybody who's watching this gets interested, we're more than happy to engage and have a conversation about investing in us in Tau Ventures. But what I've noticed is that, first of all, the word entrepreneurship is now on the map. 10 years ago, I actually prospected around Brazil to perhaps invest there. And empreendedorismo, entrepreneurship, was caused some blanks, some blinks, and it wasn't well established. Nowadays, you talk to anyone and they'll say, it's a viable career. I have exits. I have big companies. I've seen people succeed. I think the most powerful lever are stories. And if you have stories of people who have done it, then you think you can do it yourself, right? That's the United States, that's Silicon Valley and other ecosystems like New York and Boston. There's countless other entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and it's an ecosystem of people who have been there, done that, who mentor, who help, who inspire, who just show what's possible, who push you. And I think that ecosystem is burgeoning in Brazil. I, I'd always thought that there would be companies from Brazil who would go public on NASDAQ. That has happened. I always thought there would be companies in Brazil that would hit... DECA unicorn status, right? Just to use that as a metric, right? 10 billion plus in valuation. That has happened. I always thought there would be folks dropping out of school, universities, and people choosing to go into entrepreneurship rather than going into more traditional careers. That, has, that is happening. So I'm bullish on entrepreneurship in Brazil. I think the country overall has deep challenges, economic challenges, political challenges, stability governance, but those have been around for 500 years. Uh, and entrepreneurship is a way perhaps to 
overcome and to succeed. And I like to joke that if you succeed in Brazil, you can probably succeed anywhere. So I think a few sectors really dominate. A few sectors are bright lights, uh, fintech, uh, SaaS, health tech to a large degree. Uh, there's others that are coming, ag tech. And when I look at the United States, uh, it's a much more developed ecosystem. So there's lots of opportunities in many different places. I have a specialized fund, right? My fund is an AI fund focused on three verticals, mostly in two verticals. Uh, there's so much opportunity here. We can barely keep track of it. I'm looking at 2,000 companies a year to do five or six investments. And there's many more that we don't even get a hold of. So being a specialized fund, venture capital fund, where I am in Silicon Valley makes a lot of sense. It's There's more than enough business for me. I think Brazil is moving into that direction. I think most funds are generalized funds looking at a lot of sectors, but you will start seeing the emergence of specialized funds. And you will certainly see many more companies that have succeeded. I have a lot of optimism around that, even though there's huge challenges for the country. Wonderful. And Amit, as both of us said, uh, we could spend hours here in each of those uh, topics that uh, we just uh, touched the surface. And But I think uh, everybody has to move on and, and go for the other meetings of the day. So to finish our conversation, we normally address uh, some philosophical questions. One of them, you touched already, the aspect of uh, sustainability and climate change. But in general, how optimistic are you with the future of uh, humanity? How far can we dream about creating the solutions we need for its sustainability? And uh, what are the main issues that you would expect uh, innovators to address and to finalize if this drives your investment decision in some sort of uh, sense? Well, let me talk a little bit about AI first. Uh, some people have this idea that AI means Skynet and Terminators and, you know, AI taking over. Uh, that's called general AI. We are so far from it. Computer is dumb as a doorknob. It cannot learn by itself unless we provide data, unless we teach it. Learning by itself, um, reinforcement learning, and there's a whole bunch of different terms around this. It's hard. I don't think in many lifetimes we will get to sentient robots. I think what AI is, specialized AI, that's what we have, is AI as a very, very powerful tool that can help us do things more efficiently, do things that we couldn't even do before, like make sense of cancer, model the climate and figure out what to do, what makes sense to do, allow for small and medium businesses to do their accounting more efficiently. This is a real example from one of my partner's uh, previous investments. Uh, self-driving cars, right? I have invested in self-driving cars in the past and uh, had a very big success. And I think that will happen uh, in my lifetime, very much so. I think AI has these challenges in the sense that it is huge, but also narrow in scope. It cannot do everything. It can do what we apply it to. At the same time, AI will create and destroy many jobs, right? Like what I invest in as a technologist and you guys invest in creates certain jobs, but also destroys another job. So there's no such thing as a free innovation. Whenever you innovate, whenever you make something better, something, someone does pay the price, right? So how do we take the people who, whose job is getting left behind? How do we train them, retrain them? How do we help them unlearn and learn? That is a big worry of mine for the next 10 years is that the pace of technological innovation is quicker than the pace of human adaptation. So how do we make sure that we don't polarize society, we create a caste system. Like we want to make sure that everybody in society benefits 
from what we're creating. Uh, business and technology is a means to an end. It's here to serve humans, not the other way around, right? So retraining people, creating policies to help bridge these gaps. And I do believe very much in leapfrog. You know, if you have countries that never had phone systems and now someone leapfrog into cellular, they never went through the landline stage, right? Like we can leapfrog. And that's where my optimism lies. Like I am fully aware of many big challenges, but I do believe in our capacity of leapfrogging and I do believe in our capacity of creativity. And I have to believe it because if you don't, then um, everything we're doing today is meaningless, right? So we have to believe that we do have the capacity in some ways to affect the future, perhaps a small way, but we can affect it. So I'll leave with that outside of my soapbox now. (laughs) I've been on the soapbox quite a lot in this conversation. (laughs) No, really interesting questions and points of views. And I think maybe this can be part of, we usually end the conversation with the final icebreaker, which is something that's currently exciting you and something that's currently scaring you. I'm not sure if you addressed any of that already in the conversation, but um, would just love to quickly hear that from you. I think we've talked a lot about what scares, but let's talk about what excites. Um, I've been looking a lot right now in, as I mentioned, companies using computer vision and AI for healthcare. And uh, we just did... Uh, a couple of investments that make paperwork more efficient. Uh, So here in the U.S., in order for you to go get a medical test, you have to get approvals. And there's a lot of paperwork. And the big story here is that paperwork is about one-third of healthcare costs. So it's about a trillion dollars in the U.S. on paperwork. So I'm trying to make a dent there. We invested in one called Glidian that simplifies pre-authorizations, more focused on providers. Whereas Another one we invested is called Banjo Health that's focused more on Payers. Payers is the fancy word for insurances. And I I can't wait for a U.S. healthcare system that is less bureaucratic, more efficient. There's incredible people in the healthcare system. In fact, I dare say many people in the healthcare system, most people have gone into it with some kind of belief that we can make a difference in patients' lives. My wife, by the way, is a doctor. So I'm very, very exposed to the mindset of folks in healthcare But the system we have built in this country, in the U.S., is a Frankenstein that encumbers patients, providers, payers, politicians, everyone. It's mind-boggling to me. And in this one aspect, by the way, there are things that the U.S. can learn from Brazil. A whole another topic for a whole another conversation. But I've dealt with the Brazilian healthcare system a fair bit, and I think there's some lessons here for the U.S. also. Agreed. Thank you, Amit. This was an amazing conversation. For sure, we have to continue it some other time. Yeah, for sure. And just to finalize, if uh, you as a listener is a family office or an investor and would like an introduction to Tao and to Amit, please get in contact with uh, me and then Carol. We will be glad to make uh, the intro and to get to know better Amit and uh, Tao's uh, thesis. It was wonderful to have you here, Amit, and uh, we would uh, love to continue this conversation sometime in the future. <laughs> and, and maybe have you here in Brazil visiting some companies with us, changing more ideas and everything else. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you so much. Thank you.